morning, everyone. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm just thrilled to be here this morning, uh, not just because this topic is very dear to my heart, but also because of your the hospitality that you have extended to me and the personal connection that you formed through this invitation. I'm just, uh, just thrilled and I hope that this is the beginning of a, uh, of a longer relationship that we can put together for our, our, our two institutions. Um, I am, uh, am going to talk to you all today about work-life balance, burnout, and what I, what I see as a very elusive uh, facet of our lives, pursuit of happiness. And I'll share with you my own personal experiences as we go along. Um, I know that it's, uh, one hour is never enough, and in fact, 50 minutes is never enough. Um, I will engage you uh, as we go through this, this conversation. But I, uh, before I um, start, I just wanted to mention that I do know quite a few people over here already. Um, and I, I, I particularly want to thank Aaron again. Um, Jim, as he mentioned, trained with us. He did his uh, MD, PhD at Emory, and then uh, came back to be faculty with us for many years. Um, just a couple of words about my institution. Uh, Emory and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta is a leading voice um, for academic medicine in the Southeast. Um, we are, I feel very blessed to be a part of a very strong private academic institution, a research institution. Um, Emory University had about, uh, the School of Medicine had $540 million of uh, extramural support last year. And our faculty has grown over time, in uh, 1994, when I joined um, Emory, we had uh, 132 faculty members. Dr. George Bromley was the chair. And I was recruited primarily because I had interest in looking at why babies develop respiratory distress um, after birth, even though their surfactant seems to be quite sufficient. Over time, we have grown. Um, the last count I have for 2019, we've now exceeded 550 faculty. Um, we um, recruit 25 interns each year, three in child neurology. Uh, we recruit 40 fellows each year in 28 subspecialties. We have 53 PhD graduate students in pediatrics. And we have the largest number of postdocs and PhD students in the Department of Pediatrics. In fact, if we put all of the basic science departments at Emory together, pediatrics has more um, PhD uh, concentration uh, than the rest of the uh, university. And for research, we've grown um, steadily from being nearly 50th in the country uh, to being um, just a little shy of the top three in NIH funding. Um, we'll, we are about uh, tracking about two to three million dollars ahead of this target uh, this year compared to last year. So I'm very confident that we will continue to um, grow. Uh, this is um, 
last year was a landmark year for us. We announced the um, launch of a new building project. We own, this is smack in the middle of Atlanta. If you drop a, a needle from a plane uh, that goes straight down into the center of the, the city, you might remember the Druid Hills area. Um, we own about 80 acres of land over here. This building, um, the first building is already up. It's our uh, clinic building. These two buildings are our admin buildings that are coming up and then construction for the new hospital will start uh, next year. Uh, it'll be a 500 uh, bed pediatric hospital with the ability to go up to 1000 beds at the same location. Uh, this is the new uh, clinic building. And we're also um, starting construction for a new research building, which will uh, double uh, the capacity to do pediatric research. But that's not why you called me here. I, I um, want to make sure that I, um, uh, I, I give you that perspective about our department and where we are in our journey and why burnout is something that I see every single day. It's simply because the numbers are huge, the numbers are large. And while we were having coffee this morning, I had a brief chat with your former chair, um, Leon, and he mentioned to me that he's never seen more unhappy people uh, in, in, in the environment. And it's true. It's true for me in my own environment. I've never seen more uh, unhappy or just not satisfied people. And the question is why? Um, so three questions for you. As you look through your own career, something that I have embraced myself um, throughout my career, is it joyful? What you do every single day, is it joyful? Do you have the right skill set? And what you do is it meaningful? Does it matter? There's lots of people out there who make widgets, but those widgets are no longer needed anymore, given that everything is becoming electronic, and they make the finest widgets there are to be made. And at some point, a sense of loss of purpose creeps in. You should never have that feeling. But yet, many of us struggle with this issue of figuring out whether or not what I do is meaningful or not because I stand in front of that computer all day long and I've lost that ability to truly make a difference in the life of a child and the life of a family and, and that, that worries me just as it might worry many of you. So let me... Um, see a quick show of hands. How many of you think what you do is joyful? Or are you joyful in general? All right, now, now please, don't, please don't put your hands down. Come on. Um, all right, so keep your hands up for a second. So you, you all admitted that you are joyful. Now tell me, if any of this applies to you, please put your hand down. Do you feel exhausted, tired, and physically run down? 
Okay. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't be, it's not a contradiction to being joyful. There are athletes who feel physically run down, but their, their mm, dopamine levels are the highest that you can ever imagine. Do you feel annoyed or irritated towards co-workers? Are you cynical and negative towards work? Hey, I still see four, six hands up. Is there a sense of being overwhelmed? Do you lose your temper? Do you have difficulty sleeping? Do you experience difficulty thinking logically and making decisions? And finally, do you feel unable to relax, concentrate at home and or at work? So the point is that the vast majority of us can relate to at least one of or more of these issues. And this is straight from Christina Maslach's inventory. And Aaron pointed out to me that Christina was here um, a year or two ago and um, and talked to you all about her uh, her um, inventory and how burnout became a quantitative uh, um, a measure that we could actually quantitate and you're not alone uh, half of us at any given time feel we're at that tipping point where it wouldn't take much to uh, get us um, on, on the other side and you want more proof but let's Let's be honest with ourselves. Um, we have the highest rate of depression amongst any other big profession. We have a problem with substance abuse and alcohol that we never admit. 50%, as I said, have burnout. We have a higher suicidal rate compared to uh, men and women in other professions. And we, we think that this is a disease of our mid-careers. Yes, it does peak during mid-career, but when does it first start? Well, it's mag it maxes or it, it peaks in February of your internship year. I have seen third-year medical students who are doing their clerkship with us walk up to me and say, I'm miserable. But that's not a good sign. That's not a good time to be miserable. You got a long road ahead of you. And so I, I, I think that it's really important for us to admit that our trainees are very vulnerable because stress is a huge precursor for all of this. And we work in a very stressful environment and our trainees are very impressionable. I've been to rounds where I observe body language of our, our attendings. The, the expression on their faces, you ask them, how are you, Dr. Aaron Zucker, this morning? And, and if he says, God, lucky, I am tired. I am exhausted. Well, what impression does that create? with our trainees who were trying to inspire. Some of that was supposed to be my internal feeling. It wasn't supposed to be um, open to everyone's observance. But if I'm leading that team, 
And I'm starting the morning by telling people that I'm pooped out. That doesn't inspire a lot of people. So remember, we have to remember that we have multiple marriages. We have a traditional marriage that we always sort of relate to. We have our spouses, significant others, our children, our siblings, extended family. And somehow, suddenly, a second marriage has come into, um, into play, and that is marriage to our work. But the marriage that we completely forget about is the marriage to ourselves. And guess when we first discover that that marriage is in jeopardy? It's when we get divorced from our own selves. And I can tell you that I had a health scare in 2011. I had a out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And I look back at those years. After that, I was grounded for six months. I didn't know if I could ever come back to work. I didn't know if I had the cognition left to be the investigator that I was, leave alone become a department chair. And I realized for the first time that I had been divorced by my own self. That I had for the longest time ignored myself, ignored my own wedding. And I had not taken care of my own needs the way I should have. And I started going to the gym again. I started spending six to seven hours on my own personal development. I went to multiple meditation camps because for six months I had nothing else to do. I spent 10 day retreats learning just to be mindful. And I am at a point in my journey, I was telling Aaron that I have begun to see a little farther out. I've already told my CEO when I would like to retire. And I have already mapped out what the transition plan is going to be. For every division chief, we have 21 divisions. For every division chief, I mapped out a three-year plan. We have mapped out a five-year financial plan. Everything is planned out so that if I were to drop dead tomorrow, I should have no regrets. And my department and everything else that matters to me, all of the faculty that matter to me, should have not one day of difficulty transitioning to the next phase. And that's where we have struggled the most, that we have forgotten that we have a commitment to our own selves. And I have to admit to you that nobody in my early years told me that money is absolutely the biggest mirage that we have. And when we had our first child, we were in Chicago. And Aaron 
Nobody gave us any paternity leave. I was back at work three days after we had our child. We had no family in Chicago. And it, those days are a sad reminder that if somebody had told me that you will at 61 years of age, you'll have more money than you can ever spend in your entire life and perhaps your next generation, that I would have taken a month off or two months off. doesn't matter. Don't pay me. But nobody talked to me at that time about what was important or what should be important at that stage in our lives, in our careers. And I, I hope that you know that data after or study after study, no matter where you look at these data, show that $75,000 median household income is all that you need to reach the peak of your happiness curve. And beyond that, there's absolutely no correlation between how much you make, how much you moonlight, how much you stress over that 1% incentive that you thought you deserved because your productivity or worked RVUs were X, not Y and how that just simply doesn't matter. And so I have added, since I took over chair, as chair in 2015, we've added 178 faculty members to the Department of Pediatrics. With every single faculty member I recruit, I have this conversation. How can we right-size the job for you? What is it, what portion, what component of your job is going to be a deal breaker for you? And yes, everyone wants to say, I don't want to do weekends anymore, or I don't want to take night call. But minus that, what is it that is important to us needs to be, and, and I think that it is important for us to realize that there's some portions of our assignments that come um, mostly as, as pro bono work don't necessarily add value. And we need to be careful as we start looking at, um, at burnout and, and where we uh, think our strengths are. It's also important, remember the second question was, do I have the right skill set? We have the largest clinically integrated network of pediatricians in the United States. And I go often visit practices in the area. And there are former residents, former fellows who have now taken on community leadership roles. And they will tell me that for 20 years, they've been doing exactly the same thing. They open their shop at eight o'clock in the morning, finish the last patient at 5.30, they have that many widgets or that many clicks to go through, and it's, we start all over again the next morning. And they have done zero, nothing, to improve their skill set. And so what I ask of you is, how do you, how do we get better at the jobs that are assigned to us? Is part of our marriage to ourselves. 
We talk about continuous quality improvement. Do we apply that to our own selves? There are people in our system who log in into our EPIC system to finish their medical records or do stuff. I don't understand what stuff that is that people do between nine o'clock in the night and four o'clock in the morning. And we track those hours. And we report them back to the faculty asking why is it that you're logging into EPIC from home between two o'clock and four o'clock or 12 midnight and three o'clock in the morning when none of your other colleagues in your division do that. Why can't you figure out a way to finish your work like every other person half an hour after the clinic is over and be done with it? So that's part of our continuous quality improvement. And then I think it is really important that we recognize that clinical skills and skill set are things that need to be continuously honed. This little story of a woodcutter is the one of a woodcutter who was the best there was in his trade. Every day with his brute force and precision, he would cut the most wood. And then one day he walks to his um, supervisor and says, I don't know what's wrong with me. I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm working harder than ever before, but I'm so unhappy. I can't cut wood properly. My productivity is down. And guess what the supervisor says to this person? When was the last time you sharpened your ax? And I ask when I go around the community, I ask that question repeatedly. What have you done in the last whatever number of years to sharpen your ax? And make sure that there is new passion, there's new ambition, there's new desire in whatever you do every single day. And finally, the third question was, what you do or what we do, is it meaningful? Well, years ago when I was in Chicago, I also, like Anne, where's Anne? I was also looking after the developmental pediatrics portion. And we had a large network, 40,000 um, deliveries in that network. And I would scribble down on a piece of paper my name um, and my university affiliation, I would hand it to every newborn that I would discharge from the program. And I would tell the mothers, look straight into their eyes and I would say, first birthday and high school graduation. Please send me a picture. And what I was trying to convey to the family was that I have confidence in you the mother, you the father, that your child will get to high school graduation. And it's amazing how decades later, I get invitations to college graduations because people are able to Google. There are not that many lucky Janes. <laughs> and and you, you Google 
you just start googling lucky md and you'll get to me because you know that's what google searches do and i remind myself every time that happens when i see a note from a family i'm reminded that what i'm able to do in my career in my life millions of people would do anything to be in those same shoes to be able to make that kind of a difference and each one of you has that ability and so let's never question what we do uh, is meaningful and Cheryl I don't know where where you are I want you to know that what you do and what your team does is so meaningful that in my field in neonatology the reason why 90% mortality has become 90% survival is not because of neonatologists is not because of ventilators and because of surfactant it's because of you and the people you lead they have made the difference because now we have realized that the ventilators were actually not necessary in a large number of those babies that we put on ventilators we now manage them non-invasively but it's that patient nurse that kind nurse who is there day after day willing to invest every ounce of her emotional energy in taking care of that child so we what we do is truly meaningful and i i hope that we never forget that so Aaron asked me to talk about the second victim syndrome and I'm going to spend the rest of, of my time talking about our programs, how we have embraced this as a real issue and, and what we are doing. Um, and I, I, I want to start off by saying that even though my focus is going to be on institutional commitment to our wellness, but as I told you from my own discovery, the wellness journey starts with me, has to start with each one of us. And there are, of course, individual and institutional commitments that have to complement each other. The focus still has to be on self, that we promote a culture of wellness around us, that we, uh, we are efficient in, in whatever we do because that contributes to our dissatisfaction and that we create personal resilience uh, within our own scope of work. I've also wondered, ever since I had my episode in 2011, what is it that controls happiness? Um, who should I pick on? Aaron. <laughs> what part of this, um, what part of this happiness pie belongs to these three components. So let's say, what is this big blue part of the pie of these three things? Intentional activities. Okay. What about life circumstances? Okay. Do you think gray would be that? Does everyone agree for the most part? that if life sucks, it's mostly because of life circumstances and intentional activities. 
But guess what? Maslach's work and every other person who's worked in this area they say it's very different. That we life circumstances and intentional activities have very little or much less to do with our happiness. That in a lot of ways we are programmed to be what we are. And whether it's the genotype or the phenotype that we develop early on in our lives, we're in charge of our own happiness. Because this is the only part of this pie that is not under my control. And so why am I so obsessed with everything else that happens around me to manage my happiness? Right? And so it's extremely important that we, we, we dispel this, this myth that life sucks because of the way the elevators don't work and why every flight leaving Atlanta is late or why uh, in general people don't care about each other anymore. Well, I'm part of that equation too then. So it's really important that we um, start thinking about our own personal happiness in these four domains. Am I physically healthy? Am I emotionally healthy and happy? What about mental, spiritual? We hardly get time to think about spiritual. And spiritual is not necessarily going to church or praying in a temple. Spiritual is alignment of what our inner core is to what we see outside. And if that alignment is not there, that gives rise to conflict. And that conflict is extremely corrosive. There are a lot of people we see in our environment who struggle with this conflict because they've not been able to figure out how to align what's deep in here with what gets expressed outside. And that's, that to me, I've discovered in my recent years through my meditative practice is spirituality. That when I sit, so every morning I sit for an hour. It doesn't matter how early my morning starts. I just wake up an hour earlier and I sit. And that's why it never bothers me, it never worries me um, if I, my flight was delayed and I, uh, I landed at two o'clock in the night because you know, it's just one of those things. And it's the same thing that how many, how many of us have practicing taking a shower in cold water? In Connecticut, in the winter. Well, one of these days you're going to have to do that. And so it doesn't hurt occasionally to just do that because when the power is out, and you have no access to it, well, why, why should I make myself miserable over it? 
And so there's a lot that we are doing for physical wellness, mental and emotional uh, wellness, because we made that commitment to our faculty. So we brought the corporate athlete program to Atlanta. We trained the first 60 peer um, wellness peers through the corporate athlete program. And every one of them has detailed kits available now to be helping other people. And every new faculty member we recruit, we pair them up with a wellness mentor. This is a person who is able to, who may not be in their own personal lives, the best role model, but still, they have the desire to help other people. They've learned from their own mistakes like I have. And I, I admit to you that I don't embody work-life balance, but that's okay. I have learned from my mistakes. When in 2011 I discovered I had been burning my candle at both ends for way too long, I made drastic changes. I had an R01 that had, was 15, in its 15th year. I closed down my lab. I gave up a lot of stuff that I thought was critical for my professional growth. And I realized that if, if I hadn't gotten CPR in the right time, all of that would have been for naught. And so all of that is gone. I focus on what's essential in my current job. I try to get through it every single day. And, and I make sure that the peer mentors have the ability to do that. The second victim issue is a much deeper issue. And Aaron wanted me to spend a, a little bit of time talking about it because it is a program um, or it is a malady that we don't often recognize. Think about this. This is from the Beijing Olympics. There is a common theme in both these slides. You recognize that, do you? This is uh, four, 100 meters into four relay and a star athlete drops the baton. I'm a veteran. I've never dropped a stick in my life. I felt it right near the thumb. When I went to grab it, nothing. I should have made sure, I guess, it was my fault. That's a feeling that every one of us will go through in our careers as patients get harmed and, and as patients suffer. And we become, after the first victim, we become the second victims. And we don't always um, know how long that second victim syndrome is going to last. I have a faculty member, senior faculty member, who helped jumpstart this program, the second victim program, um, who went through a truly life-changing experience when he's one of our best uh, laparoscopic surgeons. And he had gone in to do a minor abdominal procedure in a young child. And 
had just insufflated the belly when the child had a cardiac arrest. And that was it. It took him years to recover from that because the child died. And they discovered air embolism everywhere. Every place on, a, in a, on the autopsy had that. And this is a person who has done probably more laparoscopic training sessions in the country than any other pediatric surgeon I know of. The person was devastated and had become a second victim. And along with it, the institution had become a victim as well. So second victims are people who get involved in either an unanticipated adverse event or because of other issues in their environment become traumatized by the event. And for us, it's very easy in the PICU. Um, there was one day we have a 50-bedded PICU between the two hospitals that we manage. We have 100 PICU beds. There were six deaths. One single day, six deaths. And the division chief called me and said, Lucky, I feel that my faculty are in, in, in crisis. I need help. And so I had the chief of our psychology go over to the PICU to, to talk, to do a little bit of debriefing and talk to them about coping and how we need to take care of ourselves during those times. Because these acute events, whether they're medical errors or just otherwise, they take their toll. There's guilt, there's, there's hurt ego, there's loss of self-confidence. And we know that errors happen. And so 50%, half of the people we, we uh, in our environment um, start feeling that they have anxiety, they have isolation, they have shame, they have guilt, and that negatively impacts their careers. And whether or not, how many of us are resilient, it's, it's hard to tell. I think most of us have that feeling that we are strong. We have that macho uh, feeling, but deep inside, it's really hard to tell how resilient we are, whether we bend or we break. I'll give you an example over here um, of a surgeon who took years to recover from that one single death because of what was in his mind an error where gas got injected into a vessel, blood vessel. Okay. There was loss of ego, loss of self-confidence. How can the trainer of trainers make that kind of a mistake? And you see on, the, uh, on, on your right-hand side a nurse from Seattle who in 27 years of her career made one big mistake according to her where she injected 100 times calcium that was supposed to be given to an ECMO patient. Never returned to work after that. Two weeks later was found dead. Snapped. Why didn't the chief nursing officer know? 
that one of the best nurses in the NICU was that close to snapping. And that resilience that we always saw was really not resilience. It was what we saw in our interface with that individual. And so it's really important that we not walk past a suffering colleague. We would never walk past this person over there. And yet how many times have we passed, walked past this person and not bothered to know or bothered to think why they are distressed. And so in our classic training programs, we teach ourselves to do medicine, do surgery, do nursing care, but we don't teach our young students and residents to live life like a good solid provider. And that training requires learning about personal resilience, about wellness, about a system focus, not personal only, but a system focus on patient safety, on peer support being a part of our DNA and leadership imperatives that start with the CEO of the hospital, the chair of the department, the chief nursing officer, every division chief needs to be involved. And Anand, um, you have the ability to, to influence a lot of trainees in, in your division. It is really important to see how they are learning um, each and, and every one of these aspects of, uh, of uh, our wellness journey. Because when, when people become second victims, they accelerate their path to burnout. They become detached. There is loss of meaning. There is emotional exhaustion that becomes ever so evident in everything that they do. And so recognizing all of this, in Atlanta, we launched a massive second victim program, which we now call You Matter program. In the first phase, we trained a lot of people in just awareness of what second victim syndrome is. And then we trained peer supporters. We um, have now the second batch of second victim uh, peer supporters will be trained next month. We expect to get another 30 of them out. The goal is that in every area there need to be a few people who at the end of the day are able to walk up to the head nurse and say, is everything okay? Is there anything happened to, that happened today that should bother us or concern us? So that then I can reach out to whoever um, may have, uh, may be at risk uh, for, um, for uh, an issue. And then we created a tier three where we have bought the time of trained people, psychologists and psych people who are, are trained to deal with these issues. So we've created a hotline where 24 seven you can make a call. And if you ever feel the need for one-on-one -on -one intervention, you can call on that individual to come meet with you or you go meet with them and we pay for that. 
We do a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support. We reach out to people via phone. Within 48 hours from the event, uh, we initiate a conversation. We, in, we, we make sure that this is a process that people identify with. So if I call Aaron and I, I will say, Aaron, I'm calling you on behalf of the peer supporter team. I heard that there was a terrible accident in the PICU today. Is there any way I can help? Or you, I understand that there was a junior faculty member involved. Can you give me that person's cell phone number so I might be able to grab a cup of coffee with that person? And I think that it's important to ask these questions. How are you doing with all of this? What do you need? And I am here to talk if you need to talk now. The problem is that majority of the times we think that he or she probably wants time to process everything. Whereas the second victim is thinking, God, where's everyone? I'm so darn alone in this. We're thinking we should probably lessen her caseload because she's going to be pretty overwhelmed with all of this. Where she's thinking they've lost confidence in my abilities. They don't trust me anymore. Because within a day after this happened, they've actually started pulling things from under me. We think, I don't know what to say. And the second victim is saying, I wish everyone could just treat me normally. And it goes on and on. There is an opportunity for us to change the way we do peer support because it is a two-way street. The senior most people learn more from these interactions than our junior colleagues. And I think it needs to be that way that we make it a two-way street. And that supporting second victims is extremely important for hospitals and for CEOs and for administrators because ultimately it helps the hospital bottom line also. And we have to remember that zero, we keep talking about zero. It's not possible. We're a very complex environment where you can generate only X number of checklists. And even when there are checklists, zero, as we've seen from the 737 MAX um, um, accidents the last few days, it's not possible. And so we have to make sure that we are kind to each other, that we promote a fair and just culture, and that we continue to practice random acts of kindness that allow us to avoid becoming spin doctors, like myself, where I became a part of that, that complex where we continue to do stuff at the expense of our own selves in our own wellness. And we must take charge to heal ourselves first because we have to be strong to take care of people in an environment. And I am absolutely thrilled to be a part of this journey with you. Thank you.